Welcome to episode 82, Electronic Record Systems, Legal and Ethical Considerations and Navigating the Options, featuring Matt Stevens by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today we are joined by Matt Stevens, and we're going to be talking about um, some considerations for the selection of an electronic record system and how to navigate the onboard and implementation process. Uh, Matt is the co-founder of Aliva, which is a software platform for behavioral health facilities, and he also has a specialization in um, building software systems for both medical and mental health, something that he's done for over a decade. So he's here today to talk with us, um, not only from a clinical perspective, but from a software perspective about what we need to be considering as clinicians when we are evaluating what electronic record is right for us. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Matt. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about you um, and and how you came to to co-found an electronic record system for behavioral health professionals? Yeah. my Originally, right out of college, actually, I helped start a software company in uh, the home healthcare space. So these are elderly people wanting to stay in their homes um, instead of go to a nursing home or skilled nursing facility. Well, skilled nursing facility might be a little bit different, but, but mainly more like a you know, an assisted living type residence. They want to stay in their home. And that was a big need uh, with baby boomers and everything going on there. And so we started a software in that space to be kind of like an operational EMR software for the agencies that would employ those nurses and caregivers going in to the homes to provide nursing care and, and you know, home care uh, to these elderly individuals. And so we um, built that company uh, and eventually sold it um, and were to a larger tech company uh, in that space. And we were working for that space, really unhappy, <laughs> kind of like working for the man. We didn't love it. And we wanted to, um, to you know, start our own software company again. So we looked at a lot of different spaces. And um, my uh, best friend's uh, son actually uh, a few days out of rehab uh, overdosed. And so we were, I was called to the hospital to help them. Um, you know, he was in the ICU, you know, just trying to understand what happened, why this happened, um, if he made it through, what were, what were the options out there? And that's where we're introduced to kind of the behavioral health space, addiction recovery, mental health, um, kind of from the facility side. And we, decided, man, this is something that we can, that we should, we should help with. This is important. And uh, so we founded Oliva with um, the goal to try and better connect patients to, you know, the care that they're receiving. So for you, it was both a professional interest and uh, expertise, but also kind of personal and seeing a need there to help clinicians and help patients primarily. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I didn't have any clinical experience uh, by any means, but I had experience with, you know, HIPAA and handling PHI information and uh, the, the rules uh, associated with that in the nursing and home healthcare space and understood medical records and medications and how to handle those in a software setting and how to handle a lot of the medical side. Um, and we figured that that skill set would translate to the behavioral health side and uh, it definitely ha it definitely did, and, and we built this software company, and we're now in over half the states in the country, and you know, growing rapidly uh, from the facility. You, our customers are more the facility side, but that's really kind of you know where my experience, you know, kind of on the job uh, in the behavioral health space has uh, blossomed from. Thank you. Um, you offer, I think, a very unique perspective on this because I know you work alongside the clinicians that Eliva employs and trying to meet the needs of clinicians. And then coming at it from my perspective as a clinician, boots on the ground, seeing providers have this struggle of like, how do I choose and what consideration should I keep in mind? And it just seems really overwhelming. Like if you Google electronic health record or EMR mental health, it's just like, oh my gosh. Um, so thank you for being with us to help 
I think, simplify maybe some of those considerations. Um, let's start by talking about um, really why do we need an electronic health record or an electronic medical record? Let's start there. Why, why do you think that's something that's important for clinicians to be considering? Well, I mean, if you take it from the clinical side, the APA's Committee on Mental Health Information Technology has developed guidelines and tutorials on on how to select an EHR, the American Psychological Association, NBCC, NADAC, you know, some of these other bodies, you know, they have all covered in their ethical codes and periodicals and different things that they've built, the importance of maintaining secure client records and that the best way to do that is through an EHR or EMR. So we're looking at it, so it sounds like for you, it's coming from an angle of security. Um, and we do have, of course, like you mentioned, those ethical mandates to protect client information, also also a legal expectation um, coming from HIPAA and the value of protected health information and what that even means. For I know for myself, speaking as a private practice clinician, um, it's, it is a scary and big leap to consider going from paper records to an online system. And there are so many things I think that, that we don't think to ask. Um, so, so let's start by talking about the security of records. What are the benefits of going with an electronic record system instead of sticking with a paper system in a file cabinet? Yeah, definitely. Well, obviously, you know, a filing cabinet is actually a lot easier to break into than a secure, uh, electronic health record that, you know, maintains the proper um, security required by HIPAA for PHI information. Um, you know, are like a lot of uh, medical records out there are housed in data centers. Um, you know, a lot of them comply with different security mandates that not only protect your information in the data center and securely transmit that data back and forth to your computer, but also we'll have physical security 24-7 on premise at the data centers themselves. Um, ours certainly do. And, and, and it's a common practice nowadays to do that. And so, um, you know, it's really putting the, that, uh, you know, really important critical information in the most secure place pro- possible. But on the flip side, giving you, you know, the most easy access to that from anywhere, right? Not just when you're at your office, but when you're on call or or um, not at not at your office uh, or at your facility to be able to access that information. That's a good point. I remember seeing articles come out from the American Psychological Association talking about some of the benefits of making that jump. And some of us, because of the nature of our work, whether we're working at a facility or um, or we're interfacing with insurance, and so we're sending records online that way, some of us basically need an electronic record, and some of us don't. And I think it's the those of us that don't need it that we're like, should we do it? <laughs> Is this a good idea or a bad idea? And and so it, it's, it's, uh, it starts with a lot of questions. Um, when a clinician is considering going into an electronic record and making that jump, what are some kind of fundamental things that they need to be considering for themselves and for their practice or their business before they make any decisions? Yeah, I think some of the most important things to think about have to do with what your pain is, right? Because I think it's pretty, I don't know, it. For those that are concerned about is an EMR better than paper, I would hope that they just, you know, know that that's just truth and fact, right? I mean, that's coming from a lot of the bodies that, you know, they, you know, that all the clinicians, um, you know, around the country are supposed to be reading and adhering to, you know, we've talked about some of those already. So it's really about, okay, when I'm going to select an EMR, what are the pains that I have today? What are the things that are I'm struggling with, either with my current EMR and maybe I'm looking to switch, or I'm on paper and I'm looking to get an EMR for the first time? What are the pains that I'm looking to solve? And, and ordering those in importance is one of the first key steps. So give me some examples of the things that you've heard from clinicians as your team has been making changes in an electronic record. What are some of the things that you hear clinicians wanting to address? Yeah, I think uh, one is definitely being able to access that data anywhere, right? Um, choosing an EMR that is what they what we call cloud-based, 
I think is critical. So there's two types of software you can choose. One is a server-based software, which would be kind of like a CD or a downloaded application on your computer that sits on your computer um, that you save the data on your computer lo- you know, itself. Um, and then the other one would be a cloud-based uh, uh, EMR, which is kind of like... Um, you know, your email or like Facebook or something that maybe people are familiar with, where you can basically go onto any computer. You could be in France in a coffee shop, internet cafe, and boot up the computer and go to the internet and type in the URL to your email or to your Facebook or whatever, type in your specific username and password, and now you have access to the same data you could at your house or your office, right? And so that's cloud-based. And I think that's one of the things that people usually want over everything at, at the very base minimum is because it allows you that freedom to access it on your phone, access it on any device anywhere so that you're not limited to kind of how you are with paper, just you have to be have that specific device that has that software on it. That would be one of the main base pains. Other pains uh, that are, that I've heard, and, and you know, I have therapists that work um, for me here at Oliva that, um, you know, I interface with every day. I talk to therapists every single day, um, you know, with our clients across the country and the things that, that, that they care about. And one of the biggest is user friendliness, right? Just they, clinicians are not trained to in technology, right? You didn't go to school to know how to work, you know, fancy technology and how to do all these, you know, creative things. It's not really what, clinicians were trained to do. They were trained to talk to people, help them diagnose, you know, their, what, what's going on and help them, you know, to heal. Right. Um, among other things, research and other things like that. But, um, and so the skill set is not, and, 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 you know, being honest with yourself that your skill set isn't technology. So you want to make sure that you're, that when you're looking for an EMR, that when, that you actually look at it, right. You do a demo or, 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 you know, to see the software and, and, and go through it and make sure that it seems something that you're going to be looking at this every day. See, it's something that is easy for you to see, easy for you to understand, easy for you to do the things that, you know, you need. It's interesting. I actually, um, some clinicians on my team sent me a, uh, a message today where uh, in 2018, Deloitte um, asked 588 clinicians which one task they perform as part of their everyday workflow that they wish could be performed more efficiently. And their number one task was documentation. Um, Now, the number two task was communication and, and care coordination, mainly more for like facilities or group practices. But it's interesting, you know, 36% of respondents uh, chose documentation. So when you're looking at an EMR, the first thing you should be looking at is how do I document my notes, right? How do I document my individual notes? If I'm in a facility and going to be leading groups, how am I documenting the group notes? Um, If you are a clinical director and you're going to be uh, reviewing notes a lot, how are you going to review those notes? How are you going to sign off on those notes? How are you going to be able to do that efficiently, easy, easily, quickly, you know, um, so that you can do what you need to do, right? Because documentation is usually, in my experience from now, don't quote me on this, but you know, the therapists that I work with, their least favorite part of their job is the stuff that has to do with EMR, right? Yes, it is. It is. I I attest to that. Yes. They do not like it. Uh, They don't want to have to do it, right? And I totally understand because therapists are caring and, and they just want to be great at what they do best, which is help people to heal, right? And so um, at least the therapists that we work with in the behavioral health industry, right? That's really what they want to do. They want to be spending time with the clients, talking to them, listening to them, helping them. Um, That's what they're best at. Uh, That's where the passion lies. It's not in then going back and writing in all the stuff that they talked about. So how, you know, look most carefully at the stuff that you do the most in the EMR, which for the most part is the documentation, right? And so... How, do, how, how does it handle that? How easily does it do that? And then secondly, it would be the care coordination and communication. You know, is, there, is it going to do some communication for you, right? Um, you know, is it going to push information to the client? 
right? Is there ways that this is going to help communicate reminders of, you know, appointments to clients? Is it going to provide the client more visibility into when they're supposed to be where or what they're supposed to do, right? You know, homework you might've given them or things you want them to work on, you know, how connected is the EMR with the patient uh, or client to, to help them uh, be able to get better and stay connected with you and communicate with you. Um, that was, you know, second on the list, you know, 36% was documentation that the clinicians responded was the thing they wanted to be, you know, the improved efficiency in their EHR, but second at 20% was communication and care coordination. So that's kind of the operational side of your practice or your facility uh, would have to do with care coordinating of when the patients are going to be there, where they're going to be, how are they communicated with? Are you having to call your patients or is the software helping do that for you, right? That's called automation. That's an important piece too that you want to look for. I'm I'm glad you brought up that piece. And yes, you're absolutely right. Um, as a documentation trainer, certainly I hear pretty consistently that documentation is the bane of the existence of pretty much every clinician. Um, and one of the points that I've even experienced myself in transitioning systems was the ability to send automatic uh, messages to clients about appointments and also billing uh, to send automatic super bills at the end of the month uh, saved an inordinate amount of time for me. And my, my patients love it because they just automatically get it. They don't need to ask for it. And so they know on the first of every month, they're automatically going to be emailed their super bill if that's something that they need and something that they've given me release to send them. Um, I think you bring up an important point of evaluating what are the real kind of pain points that are motivating um, this switch and what are you looking for in the perfect world? Yeah, I think just just going off that, Elizabeth, would be the thinking about your EMR uh, decision from the perspective of pain, I think is the most uh, logical and efficient way to go about it. Because a lot of times you'll look at different softwares and you'll get big eyes on all the different cool features and things it can do and all this stuff. Um, but the most important thing is to eliminate pain, right? Eliminate friction between between you and what you're trying to accomplish. Because really, in a perfect world, every single clinician, all they would need to do would be to talk with their client and work with their client one-on-one, right? Um, and not have to do anything else. But obviously, you know, we need to document, we need to, you know, coordinate care, we need to do a lot, you know, bill, we need to do all these other things, take a credit card, you know, things like that. Um, we need to be able to do those things. And so starting from the most important pieces and the things that could cause you the biggest pain if it doesn't work smoothly, and then work from there up. One of the other things that I'm thinking about as you're talking about that um, in the idea of interfacing with other professionals, um, I remember one of the facilities that I worked with as a private practice clinician. So I had a client that was in their care and then you know eventually transitioned back to my caseload. And they had said to me, would you like weekly updates? And it was so helpful to me to expect that every Thursday or Friday I was going to get an automated email from them that their electronic record system had put together that was telling me what was going on with that person so that I had the broad strokes about how they were doing in treatment. And I think it points back to um, even what the American Psychological Association talks about. Um, and I've seen seen various articles they've released about this conversation about efficiency. Like how can we check these boxes in a more efficient way and save everybody's time so that we can get back to really focusing on the work itself, which is being with the clients and their families and the healing. Yeah. Well, going off that, one thing to think about is email is not HIPAA compliant, right? Um, email itself is not is not HIPAA compliant. You do not sign a BAA with Google, right? They're not going to sign a BAA with you. And so when you're looking at your EMR and they talk about email alerts, text alerts, email reminders, email, you know, things like that, you need to double check with them what information is coming over the email, right? If it does talk about the client, is it, is, are the, is it going to have the client name in there or is it going to be client initials, right, to de-identify the PHI data? You know, things like that are important. Um, uh, to make sure that you're following um, correctly. You know, at Oliva, like we decided eventually that, you know, hey, we're, we're not going to be able to get around this email issue. So we built like a portal for 
people to have, you know, consultants or other uh, uh, clinicians or families or different things to do kind of HIPAA compliant email communication in. And, and there's plenty of EMRs that have that. And, and uh, you know, being able to make sure that, you know, you're asking those types of questions when they're, when they're dazzling you and your eyes are getting big, that there's all these different cool alerts and communication via text and email. Remember, text and email is not HIPAA compliant. So you need to make sure that they're either de-identifying the data that they're sending over those mediums um, or they have some other way to, you know, have that communication done. Yes, I'm glad you bring up that point. And actually, you're right. That email that was coming was through a portal, and and the records that are sent automatically to clients, like a like a receipt, same thing. And I'm glad you bring up that point. And and that's another um, difficult area for providers of the the security of different forms of technology and the difficulty with things like texting and email. Um, that there are some. Um, some email providers that are HIPAA compliant, but that it requires very specific protections that the provider has put in place and maintains. And an electronic health record is part of that conversation. Well, and one thing to remember is that there is no HIPAA like agency, right? There's no such thing as like the agency of HIPAA. So no EMR is actually certified by HIPAA. There's no such thing. There's tons of EMRs that will say they're HIPAA certified, quote unquote, but it's not true. There's no such thing as a HIPAA certified EMR. So an EMR can say they're HIPAA and then be breaking HIPAA by sending emails or texts with patient names and data in it and still say they're HIPAA because those are settings that you turn on and off in settings. Like you could turn off those emails or texts, but it's up to you. We give you the option, right? So you need to make sure that you're informed on how this information is being communicated and what's going on so that um, you can ask those types of questions, right? And really get to the bottom because it's an EMR isn't going to just come out and give you that information, you know, of its own free will. Like, yeah, we're HIPAA compliant, but only if you use our system a certain way and you don't get to use a bunch of the fancy features that you wanted to get us for in the first place. <laughs> that That's a great point. I'm glad you bring that up because you're absolutely right that for us as clinicians, the onus is always on us and we can't, um, we can't release PHI and then say, well, it was, it was XYZ EHR's fault that, and, and sometimes it may be, you know, occasionally, of course, yes, there are unfortunately data breaches and we see the news about them, yeah. but that it's us, up to us as providers to make sure that we have settings within an electronic record that are consistent with the legal and ethical codes um, to make sure that, that we're, we are still actually in compliance and have it rendered something non-compliant. <laughs> Yes. So outside of even just the security issue, which is in and of itself a big beast, when we put a pin in that and come back to kind of the usability of a platform, um, you mentioned the the ease of writing documentation or interfacing with patients slash clients or family members or, or other providers. How do we evaluate um basically whether or not something is going to work smoothly for us, knowing that everybody's kind of organizational system and brain works differently. Yeah, for sure. I think it's important to be thorough in the demos you do. As a rule of thumb, I would always look at at least three systems minimum. Um, and, uh, and I've seen it done in different ways. You know, my personal preference that I've seen is, You'll find maybe, you know, because this is an important decision, you know, going on a quick tangent, you know, the average uh, length of time that you as a private, private provider, a private practice, like a group practice or a facility is going to stay with an EMR is about five years. So when you're making this decision, you're about to make a decision about something you're going to look at every single day, a lot each day for five years. <laughs> and so, um you know, it's worth spending the time to make sure you make the right decision. So my recommendation is to find six to seven EMRs and do maybe 15 to 20 minute meetings with each one. Uh, look at a demo, ask some, some pointed questions, and we can talk about what those questions might be, you know, shortly. Um, and, uh, and then take that kind of broad, sweep and then drill down to maybe your top two and then do some longer demos and, and, and more in-depth uh, 
questions with those top two and then make your choice. Um, those, that, that would be uh, something I think would be important. I appreciate that piece of guidance. I know even for myself, when I was comparing multiple systems, it also felt scary to even do trials because there's such, there can be such a learning curve. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to set up an assessment tool, for example, for a new client and see how that goes. And it, and it's, I think it's kind of a scary process for providers and facilities because you're just kind of crossing your fingers and squinting and like hoping that it's going to go okay. Um, and, and I think it also is, is uncomfortable because you may not end up going with the first one that you try. So then you feel potentially like you've lost some time, um, for me, I think that process helped me clarify what I really wanted in a system. And I think that I, I'm reading between the lines and what you're saying, but kind of allowing some time to do this process and not making a hasty decision because, because a colleague said, hey, this is what I use. That's what you should use. Um, but actually doing a needs assessment. I know the APA advises that as well. Doing a needs assessment and really evaluating what do you need in your practice or in your group practice? And for example, do you have... Um, a prescriber. So are you a facility where you're working with a nurse practitioner or a medical doctor and you have to have a feature that's going to capture dosage and frequency of medication? That's not relevant for me as a private practitioner. So it, uh, a detailed needs assessment, I think, is, is an important part of this equation. Yes, for sure. And, you know, making sure to broaden that, that, um, that horizon and make sure that you look at a, at a handful of different ones is just important because once you make your decision, you're probably going to stick with it for a while. And you just want to make sure that you've really looked at, at everything out there, right? Because, you know, if you look at the first one you see, it might be fine, but um, you realize when you, if you look at a few more that that one that you looked at looks like Windows 95 and, you know, there's some prettier things that might be easy on the eyes that might just have the same exact functionality as the Windows 95 one. But, you know, you use the software and you want it to be something that, you know, you're happy looking at every day and doesn't look like a, you know, it was made in, you know, the early 90s, right? So it's important to make sure that, you know, you're happy with what you have, you wouldn't want to make a decision and then six months later feel like, uh, you know, oh, I missed out and I could have, you know, been on a different system and then have to do a transition and, you know, deal with uh, all the things that go into that because transitioning EMRs is not super easy, right? Nor is it fun. <laughs> yes, for sure. And, and also it's important too, because we've talked about this concept of you're going to make a decision that's going to, you know, that you're probably going to be on for years, right? You want to make sure you're choosing a system that is going to grow with you and grow with the changing regula regulation and insurance and need and needs that you'll have going forward as just the industry changes, right? As regulation changes, as you know, state and and federal government changes, insurance changes. Um, you know, uh, so it's important to be with a provider that you feel is adequately investing in their own product and service so that they will continue to grow because you're not making a decision just for right now. You're making a decision for two years from now, three years from now, four years from now. And so sometimes a really good trick um, to, to see, to like kind of tell if they're going to do that, because if you ask them point blank, every EMR is going to say, <laughs> you know, yeah, we invest a ton in our software and, you know, always will. A good trick to, to do to, to see that is look at the UI. And the UI, UI stands for user interface. So look at how it looks, right? How does it look compared to software that you use currently, whether it be social media or email or, you know, other things that you've seen out in the wild. I think it's important to make sure that you're, you're going with a program that is going to grow with you, right? And is investing in their, in their products and services. I think that's a really good point. And I remember seeing some electronic record systems a few years ago um, when I was working with a facility and 
it was really interesting because some of them were very sparkly. Like they had a very kind of what I would call a sexy interface, if you will. Um, however, the actual systems behind them weren't nearly as robust. And it was an interesting balance between the integration of different features and the the prettiness of the platform, if you will. Yeah. Uh, but I hear what you're saying and making sure that it's that it is maintained, that it's not just going to age and, and gather dust on the shelf, but that the company is investing and continually updating it to meet the needs of the industry. Like you said, the, you know, the, involvement of insurance i will definitely tell you that um if it were between a very very old looking interface that has the functionality i need and a pretty sparkly new interface that doesn't have the functionality i need i would encourage myself to choose the old one right so what you're looking for is you know everybody who's listening to this podcast is doing so because they want to improve and get better and learn and, uh, and so you want to choose, you know, the best possible, you know, um, system and service for yourself. And so what you want to look for is both, right? <laughs> um, but if you had to choose, if you weren't able to find both, you know, because um, uh, the behavioral health market is very big, right? There's lots of different niches and small um, kind of specialties in our space that maybe are underserved, right? And, um, you know, there, there isn't a lot of choices. And if that's the case, you know, always go for the one that has the functionality you need. Because again, it's about pain, right? You know, what is going to take away my pain? And if you have a sparkly system, but it does, it's very light on the functionality it has that you need that's going to take away your pain, then that sparkly stuff is going to get pretty frustrating pretty quick. <laughs> One of the needs that I've heard mentioned as well is the importance of outcome measures and the ability to aggregate um, data. And I specifically probably have a really unique perspective on this coming at it through the lens of utilization review and quality assurance. Um, but that that was one thing that I saw when I was looking at different electronic records, both as a private practitioner and when working with facilities that are in an implementation process actively or in the review process and trying to select one, uh, you know, will this be able to tell, tell us at easily that the majority of our clients had this certain diagnosis and that their symptoms shifted and improved over a certain amount of time, how many people experienced a worsening of symptoms and, and being able to look back and kind of aggregate that data. Um, I think that's another one of those pieces of, of, of that needs assessment of even down the road, will I need this? If I'm working with insurance um, outcome measures, the joint commission, those things are very important. Yeah. So interest, like just, a, a, I guess, an anecdote that people might find interesting that happened in a different space that, you know, this is totally uh, ideas and theories according to Matt here, <laughs> but um, uh everybody that was kind of dozing off just like perked up what you know <laughs> i want to hear the theories <laughs> um but uh i'll say so in the home healthcare space right the home healthcare space uh 7 or 8 years ago was very similar to this behavioral healthcare space that it is today and it was a little bit more of the wild west like insurance is you know reimbursements are kind of all over the place they're trying to figure it out um, you know, what's working, what's not, you know, outcomes has kind of been around for a long time, but is becoming more and more adopted through, you know, accrediting bodies like the Joint Commission and CARF and things like that. Um, but it's not standardized, right? It's, there's not some, you know, full standard, you know, that's come down from the federal government. Well, what happened in the home healthcare space that I believe is going to happen in this space um, eventually is they they adopted what's called a star rating system where they took facilities or you know group practices or things like that and based on so they use the outcome measure of a readmission rates to the hospital so if you go to the hospital and break a hip and then go back home and are being taken care of by a home health care company and then you go back to the hospital for the same broken hip that's considered a readmission rate, right? Obviously, the home healthcare company didn't do a great job in maintaining the health of that hip and, you know, keeping them out of the hospital. So they called it a readmission rate. So basically, based on your readmission rates, the uh, the you know Medicaid and Medicare who are reimbursing a lot in that space would basically, based on your star rating, if you were a five star, that was the best. You know, your readmission rates were the lowest. Your outcomes basically were the best there are you would get an actual higher reimbursement, much, much higher 
um, and you would be able to build a thriving business and acquire other practices and, you know, because you're doing so well and bring them under your five-star system and all that stuff, right? So those practices would grow and, and, and consolidate other practices, right? A four-star, you know, you'd be a healthy company, you'd be doing great and, you know, thriving. Three-star, you'd be like living right on the edge. You're basically have very little margin and you're right there. Two-star and one-star, you're going to go out of business pretty soon. So they did that in the home healthcare space, and it was a huge shakeup. And the company that we sold to in that space developed outcomes, tools, and uh, measurements um, to basically predict when someone was at a higher uh, chance of readmission. And it they basically sold it as a product to their customers, and it was the fastest growing product they ever made. And, um, and it was incredibly successful because it helped people to do that. So I think outcomes are going, you know, in the direction of creating, as we get more and more data, um, they're going to become more and more standardized and that that will eventually directly affect, you know, re, uh, reimbursement rates from insurance and from Medicaid and, and things like that. So I think outcomes is the future. It's really, really important. And so I just wanted to echo that with kind of that antidote because I think it, is something interesting, you know, from my perspective that, you know, I've seen in another industry that I think could happen in this industry. I'm glad you bring that up. Um, I've had the same thoughts myself and have seen the Joint Commission, uh, seen their requirements shift and have heard discussions in, in different um, different circles about the accrediting bodies and insurance requirements. And I, I agree with you. I think outcomes are going to become increasingly more important for behavioral health providers and, and rightly so, you know, we don't, we would never want to go to a medical doctor and, and we say, well, what's the likelihood that this is actually going to help me? And they just shrug and they're like, well, I hope it will, you know, like, it's like, oh, um, so we, we want to validate our work just as a medical professional would. And so I think it's, it's a good direction, but I think it's a scary direction and it's something that we haven't done before. So it is another one of those considerations of, what what might I need down the future um, or down the line? And this this is one of them. You might need the ability to do a, a easier outcome evaluation. Well, yeah. And just for your own data yourself, making sure that you are tracking how the what the outcomes are of your clients and being aware of what's going on and changing your care and approach, which is the joint commission standard, right? Which is to, you know, really all the joint commission standard is, is, that you use some generally accepted outcome, that you uh, track it uh, in whatever way you want. It can be eyeball tracking and that you adjust your care according to the outcomes data you find, right? And so I think they're doing that, which is smart because it's helping the clinicians and, you know, I say us, but it's not me, but, you know, the clinicians to, you know, it's helping us to uh, get better at the care that we're giving um, and do it in more of a quantitative way. And, um, and I think that will better prepare you, your practice, your facility to, you know, when, when those mandates come down, that it won't be, you know, such a big deal because you've already been working on it for, you know, a while. I agree. So it's not too much a, a shock to your system. Um, so we've talked about kind of doing that needs assessment and what a practitioner or a facility needs right now, but then the importance of also imagining if this practice grows, if if I go from being an, an independent private practitioner to opening that group I've been joining or I've been about, what will happen if I do that? If I start working and taking on associate uh, social workers or therapists uh, to work with me, what would that mean um, in the access to records? So I think that needs assessment of starting here and then kind of future awareness. Um, we've talked a little bit about the benefits with patient privacy. Um, let's talk a little bit about budget. Like that's another point for therapists or clinicians. It's like really scary of like, how much is this going to cost? And that, that what I've seen that there's a very big difference between a facility electronic record system and a, a private practitioners record system. So tell us about that. Yeah. I think that's a really important point because I mean, I'll tell you from my experience, like We'll have people that work in facilities, you know, because our, our product only really is built for facilities, right? And we'll have clinicians that work in our facilities that will come to me and say, Matt, you know, I really want to use Oliva for my private practice because I love it. And I tell them most times, I'm like, hey, you know, it's not, there's better solutions out there for a private practice because of like cost for one, right? Just because, you know, 
a, a facility EMR is going to run you anywhere from, you know, you know, probably a thousand dollars or more possibly a month, right. For a facility EMR software where there's uh, EMR softwares for private practices that are like free or, you know, $20 a month or $50 a month or a hundred dollars a month. Right. Um, per user. And if it's just you, right, that's definitely what you would want to do. And so I think understanding what your needs are is important, right? If you're doing private practice right now, I would highly recommend finding an EMR that's going to be a per user model. That is, that is going to be something $100 or less per user per month. And that's going to service you now. Even if you have plans to open uh, you know, mental health facility or a residential facility or um, a, a large group practice in the future. Um, you know, I do think that it's it's the value is there just to go with an EMR that's going to be inexpensive and not break your bank and you know service what you need now. Um, and instead of like trying to get the facility software or the huge scalable software that's going to cost you a lot more now. Um, and just, you know, because you want to do this later. Right. Um, I would just, you know, that would be a, a big recommendation from me there is to go with what works with your budget. Now, now, if you're going to open a facility, you know, you, I've seen facilities try to use, you know, uh, EMRs that are built for private practices, right? And uh, it never goes well, right? So you want to make sure that you're aligning your needs uh, with the needs with with the what I call the twelve o'clock of the software. And what the twelve o'clock means is it's what was that software built for, right? You know, what did they build their software for? Who were their first like handful of clients? What type of clients were they? Were they private practitioners? Were they facilities? Were they group practices, right? Whatever that that twelve o'clock for that software is, you want to be you want to match yourself to that twelve o'clock. I think that's a really interesting point, and one of the things I'm thinking with budget also. Um, so finding something that's the appropriate kind of size for where you are right now, and then hopefully has a growth potential, but keeping in mind that 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 there's a big difference between being in a small practice and a facility, and the needs are very different, so the cost is different. But then also the cost of things like training on the system and the actual implementation, and then the importance, and this is kind of my next question, the importance of support from that electronic record. So tell us about that when we're looking at options, what do we need to keep in mind um, when we're evaluating a vendor's technical support systems? Yeah, it's really important. I think support is incredibly important, especially in our space, because uh, again, like, you know, technically, you know, EMR can get really complicated, right? You know, there can be, uh, depending on, you know, the type of, of, you know, business it is, you know, it can be really complicated. There's a lot of moving parts, there's a lot of people involved, you know, and so, again, the same thing, matching your need with, with what your company does, and what you need your EMR to do, and matching that with what you need, like we talked about with the 12 o'clock, but also with support, right? Like, so, you know, thinking about what you need, if you're working with, if you're, if you are a large group practice or facility, right, and you have, you know, 50 employees, or 30 employees, or maybe they're not employees, partners, or whatever, you're going to want a software that probably has support included, right, at no extra cost, you can use as much as you want, and you want to probably talk to customers of theirs to just validate that, that, hey, when I call, do they pick up, you know, what's their response time, you know, is it, do I just have to send in an email every time I need help? Um, what's the training and onboard process like? How much are they helping you? Does Do things cost extra? I mean, going back to the budget, right? A lot of EMRs will price their software where, you know, it seems really inexpensive, you know, per month. But then, you know, there's all these nickel and dime costs that kind of add up where every single they charge for support by the hour and it's 200 bucks an hour for support and, you know, they charge for training and implementation and it's, you know, 20 grand for implementation and training, right? You know, so you need to uh, make sure depending on, you know, what your needs are, 
that you're choosing the right software that will have the right level of support. Because if you're a private practice and you did the demo or you did the trial and you get it and it's very simple and you don't need it to do a lot, you don't need a lot of support and help because it's simple and what you're doing is simple, then maybe choosing a software that does kind of you know, break up all those costs as separate costs is going to be the best value for you, assuming that the EMR fits your needs because you're not going to really use it. So why pay for it, right? As kind of a bundle. Make sense? Absolutely. Um, and I'm thinking too, as you're talking about training, I going, so I'm thinking about how you train professionals, but then also who should be involved in this conversation. So for our listeners out there who are not in the private practice space and not necessarily in group practice, but are working on a facility level, who do you involve in this conversation? Because there are so many things to keep in mind. I mean, this, like, this is where we really get into my expertise, right? Because that's who I work with as facilities. I mean, this is critical. Groups too. This applies to group practices too. But you need to, like, the best question you can ask yourself is, because this happens a lot when an EMR is talking with a point of contact at a group practice or a facility and you know that person and maybe that person would be you and maybe you've talked to the owner if you're not the owner and they're like hey you know i trust your judgment i want you to make a decision or find something and you know whatever you recommend we'll probably go with well at the end of the day you, you know so you may be feeling like yeah i'm going to make this decision you know i'm going to do the research and i'm going to do but at the end of the day the question i want you to ask yourself is if I'm actually going to go to sign paperwork with this EMR, is there anybody I'm going to need to, is there anybody I'm going to need to talk to, or can I unilaterally just make this decision, right? Or even if you're an owner, if I'm an owner of a, pra- of a group practice or a facility, am I going to unilaterally make this decision and not tell my clinicians, you know, or, or run it by them? So it's the, the best thing you can say is, at the time that I'm going to go and make this decision, who am I really going to bring in? as part of my team to, to just run this by one last time before we make a decision. And whoever would be in that room for that final discussion should be involved in the dem- demonstration process, at least for the final two that you narrow it down to, so that they can have some say, that they can ask questions, especially in a facility where the clinical aspect is just one part of it, right? There's other aspects. If you're the, the clinical director um, you know, you also need to think of the operation staff, of the admission staff, of the billing, of the, um, you know, medical team, the doctor, the nurse, right? Um, all the people involved, right? You know, if it's a group practice, right? Who are my, you know, clinical partners, right? You know, that are going to be using this every day. How much do I want to involve them? Or maybe if there's too many, let's say you run a group practice that has 300 clinicians in it, right? You can't have 300 people on a demo, create a committee, right? Would be great. It's be like, all right, we're going to switch EMRs. I want to create a committee. Who of the 300 would like to participate and make a committee of like 10 people to be involved in that decision-making process to make that decision or have them elected or something like that. So that these are things you can do to prepare to make the decision if you are a bigger operation, because it's really helpful for, for you to be clear on what your pains are, like we talked about, what your objectives are, what you're trying to solve, and then who is going to be our main decision-making team scoped out before you go on your EMR search. It will make your search and decision go so much smoother and quicker by doing that. I'm glad you bring that up because I've seen that in facilities um, and how disjointed the implementation can be. I mean, I, I've, I've worked with countless facilities on the implementation of a record system, um, whether they're newly implementing it and their new facility or they're switching systems. And it it really is such an exhaustive and stressful process when you're working on a system that's at large. And I have absolutely seen where everyone's in a room where like, okay, we're good to go. And then like a nurse raises their hand and it's like, well, actually, and it's like, oh, like push back the launch date. Yes. Well, I mean, this is a great way to segue into preparing for an implementation, right? Because, I mean, that's probably the, the one of the biggest keys is when you're doing the implementation, you need to have one point person, right? If you're it, now, if you're a if you are a primary clinician, you are the point person. Awesome, done. That should be easy. You're the only person that really is going to be using it. Oh, um, you are the only person that's going to be using it. 
So um, you are the point person. But for a group practice or a facility, uh, you need to select one point person that will be the main point of contact, kind of like the project manager between the EMR and your facility. This is critical. Um, the second thing that I think would be super important in preparing for successful implementation is making sure that you ask the EMR company, what can you describe for me how the most smooth and successful implementations go and have them tell you that before you even start the implementation so that you can prepare because maybe you have, you know, your biopsychosocial or a certain assessment that you use, but you have it tweaked a certain way and that's important for you. You want to, and you know, different forms or assessments that you have that are really important that you want them to build in your, in your kind of process and flow that maybe they don't have naturally in the system, or maybe they naturally have in the system, but you want it tweaked. So it's very important that you ask those, that question of how do the best implementations go, the most successful and smooth on the EMRs part, because if you can prepare and get those documenta that documentation ready, the different components ready that they kind of talk about uh, when you ask that question, it is going to help you in the end. You're helping them, yes, and I'm coming from that side, I know, <laughs> but by helping the EMR, you are going to help yourself, right? Because it's going to go so much smoother and quicker. So that, I think, is a really critical thing to ask so that you can get all that stuff ready um, as much as possible before you even start. So then the EMR that usually goes and it's kind of like a big decision or not a big decision. It's a big, you know, undertaking and there's a lot of back and forth of the different things they need. And then, you know, you remember something you want, you know, that was forgotten about. It's just, it goes into this communication downward, you know, well, um, setting those expectations right in the first place is important. And that could be part of the EMR decision-making process, talking to your EMR, in the decision-making process, how do implementations go? How do you approach that process? How do you help us to be successful in the implementation? What, you know, you want an EMR that's going to have some sort of very streamlined, repeatable process so that you can feel confident that when you work with that EMR, they're going to put you in kind of this machine that's going to make you successful, right? That, that they've done a million times that, you know, you can feel confident is going to work. And so that's important um, to, to, to check on that pre- decision and feel confident in the answers they give you in the plan they give you and then post decision make sure that you can what what you can do to get ahead of the game to make it smoother and easier for the EMR because that's going to make it easier for you I think everything that you just brought up, I think those are really good points about the implementation of the system and some of the considerations of what it means when you actually um, put theory into practice and and make this system work for, for a whole organization. Um, we are starting to run out of time here. I want to invite you to kind of recap for our listeners some of the things you presented today and also any other points that you'd like to add um, that are important considerations for our listeners while they're going through this process of choosing, choosing an electronic record system. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think to one thing just to point out, you know, that the, you know, back to kind of that Deloitte research uh, uh, survey that was sent out, um, you know, the easier it is to enter data the more likely it will be that you will capture all the data. And if you capture all the data, you're going to understand, you know, your clients better and understanding the clients better will help you to make more informed decisions about those clients. And the more informed decisions you make, the better your care is going to be. Right. And so it kind of all starts with ease of use and being able to, um, enter things quickly and easily and capturing the things you enter in an easily understood way. Right. And that kind of goes back to a little bit kind of connecting back to outcomes. Right. And so, um, I just wanted to, I think that's an important point, you know, for us to remember as we're looking for a new record system. Um, another thing I think is important is, you know, we've talked a lot about how to choose, you know, records, how to implement a new record system. I think one thing that's important is if you're already on a record system and you're thinking about switching to make sure that you understand what your system does today and where the gaps are that will help that, that you want to fill and be very, very um, 
clear on what those are and what you're looking for, right? I think that will help too, so that when you go into a meeting with a new EMR company and you have a current EMR company to be able to say, hey, this is what my current EMR does that I really like, so I don't want to lose this. And this is what they do that I'm struggling with and that is the most important for me, right? Um, and, and, you know, that's probably going to come from pain like we talked about, but making sure that you make it really clear because it'll make it easier for the EMR to respond, but it'll also make it easier for you to evaluate what they're telling you, right? Um, because you've made it very clear what it is that you need to have that you currently have that you don't want to lose and what it is that where the gaps are and kind of asking that in a very point blank way in the EMR process is going to help you cut through some of the fluff and get right down to the nitty gritty of what it is that you need. And that I think is especially important when you're doing kind of, when you kind of do that broad net in the beginning where you're just going to have these quick 15 to 20 minutes with a bunch of these EMRs to kind of narrow down to your final two, make sure that you're very clear and concise going into those meetings of what it is you need. I think those are really good points in that transition process and how to make that a little less difficult because it is a beast. Um, And And I can also see how it's a consideration, again, talking about budget and the amount of time to then implement a new system. A quick question for you, with the larger facilities you work with, how long do you think facilities should expect it to take to really implement an electronic record system? Like what is kind of a reasonable reasonable timeline? It's going to depend on size, right? So let's say it's a small residential facility, right? You had mentioned like an addiction facility. Let's say it's a small residential addiction facility that maybe is, you know, has 20 beds, 20 patients, right? That implementation should take anywhere from four to 10 weeks, right, to do. Um, Four on the fast side, 10 on the longer side. But let's say it's a 120 bed psych hospital right? That is going to take anywhere from three months to six months, you know? So it kind of depends on the size of the facility. Let's say it's more of like an IOP level outpatient. It should take two to six weeks to onboard an IOP that's, you know, 50 clients or less. Might be a little bit longer if they're a larger IOP. And when I say, I mean, at the IOP level. Now, an outpatient that's a a pure outpatient program, seeing clients, you know, for individual billable sessions once a week or something like that, you know, that should only take, you know, two to three weeks, right? It shouldn't be that difficult to do that uh, and onboard like that. Um, I think it just, it depends on the type of facility or the type of program you're running. But it is important, right, to have, you know, those expectations. And you should ask your EMR, right? Because each EMR has a different process on how they implement and some might have a a theory or you know an idea where they want to take longer to do it and that's you know how it works best for them whereas others might be you know fast and and so i gave you some rough estimates from my experience but it's going to vary emr to emr and just you know ask them what it is for your specific business and they should give you i mean they're not going to want to give you they're going to give you a, a straightforward answer on that thank you i i appreciate that insight because i think part of this in the selection implementation a big part of having it go smoothly is having an idea of what to expect and not having an expectation that isn't met and then and you know thinking it's only going to take a few weeks when it's really going to take months and being prepared for that um matt this this conversation i think has been so helpful to organize some of these pretty overwhelming pieces of information and considerations when clinicians are looking for more information and more resources about this selection process uh, what would you recommend what websites what um, authors or resources have been helpful to you and to to your team there yeah um you know we mentioned the uh ama and the psyche uh and uh some of the different uh publications already on the podcast um you know, um, our blog has some great information on it. There's, uh, there's a number of resources out there, you know, software advice, um, G2 crowd. Uh, these are different resources that, you know, post reviews on, um, 
EMRs uh, from people that have used it and can be a good resource to gather more information um, on, uh, you know, and they have good blogs uh, about, you know, how to choose an EMR and information like that. So those would be some good resources I would recommend. Thank you. I appreciate that. And for our listeners who would like to get in touch with you, maybe they have some questions about some of the things you've discussed today. Um, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. Um, our website is helloaliva.com. Uh, A-L-L-E-V as in Victor A. Um, so just helloaliva.com. You can come on there, chat with us. We have people on chat ready to answer any questions, even about how to select an EMR, even if you're in private practice and you just want some tips. Uh, my team, you know, we have licensed clinicians on our team. Uh, we have, you know, executive directors, different people that have worked in facilities, worked in private practice. They'd be happy to help you via chat or, um, uh, the, you know, sign up, you can fill out a contact form and we'd be happy to give you a call as well. Um, so that's probably the best way to contact me and us. And you can get a hold of me that way too, uh, uh, through our website. Also, if people want to reach me via email, it's matt.stevens at helloaliva.com. And you're welcome to, uh, email me there. Wonderful, Matt. Thank you so much for sharing this information and making this exhaustive process, I think, a little bit easier when we're considering it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.